0: Friday means market day here in the seaside town of Bantry in West Cork. All around this busy square, stalls are set up selling everything from artisan cheeses to rusty power tools. And some of the traders here sell vintage knickknacks, the kind of thing I usually walk straight past. But for some reason, my eye was caught by this a brass bed warmer. It's quite beautiful with a long wooden handle and a circular brass pan at the end. But if that was all there was to it, I'd have left it behind. The stallholder, a guy from North Cork, told me that it came from Bowen's Court and that it belonged to Elizabeth Bowen. Now, he didn't think I'd know who she was. He said to me she was a writer who used to be famous in England. You wouldn't know her. But actually, I did know her. I knew her as a highly regarded Irish writer who'd been very successful from the 1920s onwards. So I just nodded because I thought, well, I definitely want to buy it now, so I won't look too excited or he'll put the price up. And it was what he said next that's really got me interested. He said, they used to love her up in North Cork. They thought she was the bee's knees. But when they discovered she was a spy for the English, they'd have shot her as soon as looked at her. Now, when I think of Elizabeth Bowen, I think of the Anglo-Irish big house, tea on the lawn, girls in muslin dresses people calling each other darling and falling intensely in love. I think of a writer who spun beautiful prose to capture the depths of human emotion. And I'm really struggling to think of her as a spy. Elizabeth Bowen's first major novel, The Last September, was made into a film starring Keeley Hawes and David Tennant.
1: Before the, um, thing...
2: The gong? Yes, yes, the gong. What, what, what...?
0: When I first read The Last September, I was the same age as the main character, Lois.
3: You know, you're... You're sopping like you're steaming, practically. You smell like a dog.
1: You know, I'd die for you.
0: And Elizabeth Bowen's writing swept me into the world of The Big House where everyone seemed to feel everything incredibly intensely.
3: How do you know I'm not in love with a married man or something?
0: Where the girls danced on the lawn with English officers, in between having tea in China cups and tennis parties. And I loved it. I liked to think I would fit right in.
3: I can't think why you're being so sudden all of a sudden, (laughs) in every way.
0: I remember thinking, this is brilliant writing, and feeling obscurely proud that she was an Irish writer. It left me with a feeling of loyalty to Elizabeth Bowen. So I suppose that's why I was struggling with the idea of the market trader calling her a spy and why I decided to find out for myself if it was true or not.
1: This is where the big valuable tree was I was talking about, just inside the gate here.
0: The big house in the last September is based on Elizabeth Bowen's family house, Bowen's Court. Between Mallow and Mitchellstown in North Cork, and
1: this is the old um, avenue then, is it? This is the town make avenue up along this way now, when she was there.
0: Dave Dwan lives in the area. He grew up right near the gates of Bowens Court. It's a lovely
1: stretch of land, yeah. isn't it? It is lovely. And there was trees up along the passage and that was all the woodland up along there. They no, just walked down there and up here to church every Sunday morning. The Bowens, the
0: Bowens, yeah. Yes, we church there every Sunday. And so it was it kind of almost their church? Oh, it was, yeah. Another local is Donnico Dooling, the broadcaster. The Bowens were quite a likable family. He knew Elizabeth Bowen. I liked her very much. And he remembers her telling him about her childhood. We're talking about the early years of the last century. Elizabeth was born in 1899.
4: She always saw Cork through sunshine. Because when she was a child, all her years were spent mostly in Dublin and the family would go down with her mother and herself would go down during the summer. They came down by train from Dublin to Mallow and there would be a pony and trap waiting there and out they would come. And they would go up along the drive up to Bowenscourt with the sun shining. There's
0: more to that image of the little girl in the horse and trap going on her summer holidays to the big house in North Cork. In much the same way that the books about girls in muslin dresses are about deeper issues and relationships, the girl in the horse and trap is aware of her uneasy position and that of her kind.
5: She's describing the people of the big house.
0: Jack Lane is a historian who's outside the British Library in London where he's researching Irish history. He has a passage Elizabeth wrote about the Anglo-Irish in the early years of the century.
5: She says, their children grew up farouche, haughty, quite ignorant of the outside world. The big house people were handicapped, shadowed, and to an extent queered by their pride. They had begun as conquerors and were not disposed to let that tradition lapse. Now, that's objective stuff, isn't it, about her own family. Her ancestor was a royalist who changed sides and went on Cromwell's side. Because of that, he got a great piece of land. And the story goes that Cromwell said, I'll give you all the land that your falcon t- can fly over. <laughs> and being a very clever falcon, he flew over to all this magnificent land in, in North Cork. And he said, that's yours for, for changing sides.
4: She told me that we got the a great bird, she said, a great flyer. And that's what happened. That's where they got the land, she said. My family got the position and drew their power from a situation which shows an inherent wrong.
0: Elizabeth Bowen may have had such sensitivity and insight because although she was the privileged girl in the trap going up to the big house, she was also the girl whose world had fallen apart in her 13th year.
6: Her mother, her aunt and her uncle all died in 1912 and her father had suffered something like a a nervous breakdown about five or six years previously.
0: Mike Waldron is from UCC.
6: Of course, she had a very pronounced stammer The suggestion is that actually the stammer originates from that period.
7: My life as a schoolgirl, that was during the First World War.
0: And you can still hear that stammer 60 years later.
7: This celestial omnibus.
0: This is Elizabeth talking on RTE Radio in 1970 when she was 71.
7: That sort of work... He must have had quite a streak of the
6: feminine in him.
0: And do you feel she had a strong personal relationship with the house and the land in Bowens Court?
6: Oh, very much so. Um,
0: I'm with Mike Waldron from UCC in the Crawford Gallery in Cork, where he's showing me a large portrait of Elizabeth at Bowens Court.
6: She writes that the landscape outside the Bowens Court windows kind of left prints on the eyes of her ancestors. This idea that somehow there was this very strong relationship between land and the people themselves. There's a a beautiful part of her novel, The Last September, where the real people are sitting around the dining table and the portraits are looking down at them. But it's as if the portraits have more life than the figures at the table.
0: So I had to show him the bed warmer.
6: Oh yes, this is great yeah it's, do, you,
0: do you think it was a good buy
6: well I love it I, I love that it has this connection with Bowen's Court
0: I wonder how it was used exactly
6: so bedpans hot water bottles have replaced them there wasn't central heating so every house had the same problem but Bowen's Court was particularly cold Bowen's Court wasn't very grand it was never finished of the four main reception rooms on the ground floor, they lived out of two: the library and the hall, and so the hall became the dining room, and the others were just closed off. And it's the same with the bedrooms. This would have taken the chill off the bed. These would have been used, probably by her guests, which included Iris Murdoch, Virginia Wolfe and so on. Virginia Woolf called it a kind of a cold block. It was a great 18th-century block of a house.
8: It was a big house, and her father wasn't that very well off. In them days, we had no hot water, what I call it. And we was fill the cans at night for the baths.
0: This is Molly O'Brien. She was the housekeeper in Bowens Court from the 1920s to the 1950s. And in fact, when I bought the bed warmer at the Bantry Market, the stallholder said he had got it
8: from Molly. The other girls had taken him upstairs... And the baths at night, the girls used to have to put them in the bedrooms. And it was in the bedrooms, they used to have their baths. And that water would have to be emptied in the morning and brought downstairs again.
0: While I like to think I would have been one of those having a bath in my bedroom, the chances are I would have been one of those carrying up the water. And if I was one of those girls carrying the water... One of the worst things I could imagine would be that my mistress, Elizabeth, was spying for the English, that she was an informer. The truth is, as much as I might like her writing, Elizabeth Bowen grew up in a world away from me, and I need to understand more about her in my quest to find out if she was a spy or not.
6: The window is looking out onto her ancestral lands.
0: For the Anglo-Irish, like Elizabeth Bowen, they were defined by their houses –
6: and she was the first female heir, and only female heir.
0: They're big houses, which helped them maintain their position and privilege, but also kept them apart. When Elizabeth wrote about houses like Bowenscourt, Court, she wrote as if they were people, with personalities and emotions.
6: But the houses themselves are afraid. The landscape is murderous.
0: Ava Walsh from the School of English at UCC says this was particularly true during the War of Independence.
6: The fields could devour the houses get burned down, people get killed. There is a sense in which the houses are afraid of the landscape that they live in.
0: When we talk about the Anglo Irish, they sort of exist in relation to the Irish, yes.
6: As you see it very strongly in Bowen's novel The Last September, where you have the big house, Danielstown, you have the family who lived there, and then you have the Irish who would be the country people, sometimes the servants, sometimes the neighbours, people who farmed, who lived locally. And then you have of course the other, the Irish as well, the man who wanders across the estate at night, the revolutionaries, the men and women of the IRA. There were people on the run who couldn't find a place to stay and they spent
4: a night in Bowens court. They gave them tea and fed them very well and of course give a Cork tea and feed him well and he would get very well with him. So the, the Republicans stayed with the Bowens for a night.
5: The only damage they did was they upset the library because (laughs) there's been the night reading.
4: And it was the only big house in North Cork that was undamaged after the War of Independence or the Civil War.
0: The fact that the house was still standing when the new Irish state was founded didn't make things any simpler for Elizabeth Bowen. She identified with both Ireland and England and described herself as being most at home in the middle of the Irish Sea.
5: She wasn't of the society she came from.
0: Jack Lane, historian, thinks this feeling of dislocation actually gave the young Elizabeth the temperament to be a good writer.
5: She was sort of unhinged socially from the beginning, which she realised, this is the amazing thing. And she explains to herself, she became a writer because of this fact. She could only relate to the world through writing, in a cerebral way, in an in intellectual way, not as another Joe Soap, you know. And she appreciated the insight that gave her.
0: Elizabeth went to school in England and in her 20s she married a man she met through her cousin. It was 1923. She said that she and her friends all intended marrying early. They considered marriage an achievement and a way of making one's mark. For her wedding she wore an amber chine dress she had made herself. She didn't even get the hem straight, said the committee of aunts. The man she married was an administrator, Alan Cameron. He was an Oxford graduate and a war veteran.
6: He used to dress her. He changed her style of dress.
0: Mike Waldron from UCC English.
6: When they met, she wore quite loud clothing, which didn't necessarily scream sophistication. It seemed kind of haphazard. And I think he made her a lot more sophisticated, a lot more professional looking. And so he, I think, helped her create an image of herself.
0: This was important because by her late 20s, Elizabeth Bowen was already a successful writer and leading a busy social life.
6: She married at, what, just 24 years of age and Alan Cameron was a little bit older than her. The suggestion is that he, having come through the First World War, that he may have suffered some traumas during it, it was a marriage that they were both comfortable in, it seems, but that had some sort of freedoms.
0: These freedoms made for a somewhat unconventional marriage. Elizabeth had several affairs, but according to Lara Feigel of King's College London, she and Alan understood each other.
3: He certainly knew and seems to have accepted it. For both Elizabeth Owen and Alan Cameron, the, the thing that mattered was discretion and, and was maintaining a mutually respectful attitude towards each other. After her father died, Elizabeth inherited Bones Court.
0: And from nineteen thirty she started to make more use of it to entertain her friends.
8: It was a happy go-lucky house. Molly O'Brien, the housekeeper. There was friends from morning, noon and night.
0: People like Virginia Woolf, Lord David Cecil,
8: Evelyn Ward, used not he come there? Oh, yes, every evening, parties here and there and up and down. And she was very kind to all the neighbours. At Christmas, there was a basket for every neighbour around. And she sent the whole staff to Cork, to the Opera House, to the White Horse Inn. It was a house that was a home to every person, both upstairs and downstairs. Happy days.
0: Family had always been important to Elizabeth, but her marriage to Alan Cameron remained childless. She always
3: talked about Alan as her family. She'd married very young and and sort of grown up with him.
0: Dr. Lara Feigl, English lecturer at King's College London.
3: If we believe the exchange of letters that she wrote with Humphrey House, who was her first serious lover, Bowen had remained a virgin well into her relationship with Alan, so I think we can assume it was a celibate marriage. But that left a lot of space for her to have lovers. One of those lovers was an Irish Republican,
0: the kind of man who might have walked across the lawn at Bowens Court at night during the War of Independence, the writer Sean O'Foylon.
3: I think it was passionate. I don't think either of them really had hopes of it carrying on. But certainly when they met, there was a sense that there was a great, chaotic sense of these two completely different worlds colliding and for bowen it was a moment of getting in touch with one aspect of her irishness she's the daughter of the big house and he's the man who burns big houses down this sense that she's having an affair with an ira gunman i think is exciting for her and through him she meets Yeats. she gets to know the writers of the irish revival it, it's a window onto a different world and she embraces it Physically, she's very attracted to him. They have a wonderful time in Bowen's court and in London, and and they both enormously admire each other's writing. It's a real meeting of minds. Their affair came to an end, according to O'Foylon, on the day that World War II broke out. In one of his accounts, they're in bed together in London at Clarence Terrace, and Alan phones from work to say that Britain is gathering its forces for war, and at that point they know their relationship's over. As soon as war breaks out, she cuts herself off from him. She sees at that point that her loyalty is to London and that she can't continue an affair with someone who's so much part of Ireland.
0: That's really interesting. If if that kind of in her head was analogous to her moving away from her Irish loyalties.
3: I think not so much Irish loyalties. I mean, he, he's from such a different Ireland from hers. I don't think her loyalties to Bowen's court, to her parish, to Anglo-Ireland get any less. But I think the possibility of this quite reckless affair with a former IRA government becomes somehow harder for her.
0: One reason, of course, that it was harder was because while Britain was at war with Germany, Ireland remained neutral.
1: And if
5: it had not been for the loyalty and friendship of Northern Ireland, we should have come to close quarters with Mr de Valera, Or perish forever from the earth.
1: I know the answer that first springs to the lips of every man of Irish blood who heard or read that speech. I know the reply I would have given a quarter of a century ago. But I have deliberately decided that this is not the reply I shall make tonight.
0: This wasn't a minor disagreement between two crusty men. Britain used to have ports around Ireland and now felt exposed by not having them. There was always the threat that Britain would seize those ports back again or that Germany would invade Ireland to open a new front against Britain. Nowadays, your national identity might be no more than the team you shout for. But of course, during a war, your identity determines who you kill or who you are killed by. So in the wartime row between neutral Ireland and Britain, Where did Elizabeth Bowen stand? Her biographer, Victoria Glendinning.
7: She said in a letter to Virginia Woolf that if Germany invaded Ireland, she hoped it would be one of the times when she was there so that she could stand up and be counted or whatever, or be killed or whatever it was. But she didn't move to Ireland, she stayed in London. Give
6: me
3: five minutes more. I think she looked on it for the rest of her life as the time when she was most ecstatically alive, I suppose.
0: In one of her novels, The Heat of the Day, she writes how the social norms changed in London during the Blitz. Bombs closed the streets and disrupted public transport. If you wanted to, you could take advantage of the chaos
3: love affairs could be had without anyone quite knowing if you hadn't come home because you'd been cut off or because you were staying at a lover's house.
0: Of course, this didn't change the nature of Elizabeth and Alan's marriage. However, the new extramarital relationship that Elizabeth embarked upon at the beginning of the war was to be deeper and more significant than any of her previous affairs.
3: She retained her sense of appearances mattering, but what she dropped was her defences... She'd never allowed herself to fall in love as completely as she did, and I think that was enabled by the atmosphere of death.
0: The man Elizabeth Bowen allowed herself to fall in love with was a Canadian diplomat named Charles Ritchie.
3: He described her in his diary as well-dressed, middle-aged, with the air of being the somewhat worldly wife of a don. So it wasn't love at first sight for him, but he was very impressed by her as a writer, and then as they met, Again, later that summer, he saw the more intense and more passionate side of her nature and and fell in love. And she, I think, was more interested from the start.
0: So he wasn't particularly conventionally attractive either, was he?
3: No, he wasn't. He's got that very long face. Lots of people seem to have found him enormously handsome. He certainly did very well with women during the war, so I think we have to assume that (laughs) that once animated, he was more attractive than in repose.
0: Perhaps a bit like her,
3: Perhaps a bit like her, yes.
0: And all this against a backdrop of a city under siege from the air. London during the war may have been a centre for writers and artists. Life was being lived to the full. But underlying that, there was a real awareness that during the Blitz, each night could be your last.
2: As she writes in her wartime novel, The Heat of the Day the wall between the living and the dead thinned. Strangers saying, good night, good luck, to each other at street corners. Each hoped not to die that night. Still more not to die unknown.
3: She also somehow felt that she wasn't going to be one of the people that died in the war. And there's this anecdote from Stephen Spender where he came to dinner and she took him out onto her balcony and suggested they might want to watch the, the firework display effectively of the Blitz. And, and, and then when they went inside said, I do apologise for the noise. Um, and it's that kind of redoubtable strength, I think, that quite a lot of writers in the Blitz displayed. And, and, and I think people were surprised to find their own resources in this moment.
0: People sent their children away from London and many who could get out did. It occurs to me that Elizabeth could have returned to North Cork to live in Bonescourt, but of course she didn't. She stayed with her lover and her husband and her friends at the centre of the maelstrom. However, she did return to Ireland on visits, and it was like another planet.
7: There was meat and cream and it was severe rationing in England.
0: Victoria Glendinning.
7: It was like suddenly going into the Ritz, you know, people in the streets, all the lights were on.
0: She writes about those lights when her character in the heat of the day arrives by boat into Dublin from Britain, where every light was blacked out at nightfall for fear of German bombing. When she visited Ireland, Elizabeth Bowen moved easily between the different strata of Irish life. Elizabeth gathered her information about Irish attitudes everywhere. She met and chatted with all sorts of people. The Archbishop of Dublin, TDs, tenants in Bowen's court, even her old lover, former IRA man, writer, Sean O'Foylon. But it turns out that it was more to her visits than just catching up with old friends.
2: Is this, is this, this is, yeah, these are the reports?
5: Yeah.
0: What she was doing was sending secret reports on her conversations in Ireland back to the Ministry of Information in London.
5: Like, the, the fascinating one, is, I think, is, is with James Dillon. In talk, he's equable, rational, and shows the kind of intellect that can make fullest use of any experience.
0: Historian Jack Lane reading from one of those reports.
5: In fact, not parochial at all.
0: They're not dry a... accounts of information gathered, but almost psychological evaluations of the people she meets.
5: His personalities that weren't monkish and worldly.
0: Here she's writing about Fine Gale T.D. James Dillon.
5: So proficiently, Mr. Dillon would be, from an English point of view, a very much easier man to deal with Ru- than de Valera. I say superficially, because while Mr. De Valera's fanaticism is on the surface, Mr. Dillon's, which exists quite as strongly, is deep down. It exploded once or twice. Years
0: later, when James Dillon found out that Elizabeth Bowen had sent secret reports on their private conversations back to the Ministry of Information in London, he felt personally betrayed.
5: This streak in Mr. Dillon might be strongly felt in this country if he ever came to full power.
0: How did a novelist come to be writing reports for the British Ministry of Information?
5: She volunteered, she volunteered, but she was paid as well for doing it. She got a stipend for it, yeah. I've come across a lot of other writers and artists who did the same. Graham Greene and people like that, they automatically did it. I mean, you know, if your country goes to war, it's the natural thing to do, to help out. Elizabeth Bowen recognised that there was a bit of a flaw, a weakness in establishment thinking in Ireland, and was personified by Churchill. He couldn't accept Irish independence. He thought this was letting the scum of the earth into power, and she knew this was wrong. She knew enough about Ireland to know, and she wanted to do them a favour.
0: But is that espionage?
5: It's espionage of a, of a very sophisticated kind. It's espionage of the mind. <laughs>
3: She knew that talking to Sean O'Foyle and talking to other Irish writers, if they'd known that she was there under the auspices of the British government, they would have denounced her. Dr Lara Feigl, English lecturer at King's College, London. So she was conscious of the possibility of spying. She was also conscious in Ireland that there were people there who were effectively spying for the Germans.
5: The Prime Minister has seen Lord Cranbourne's minute of the 25th of November enclosing a report by Elizabeth Bowen on the position in era. He would be grateful if you would... Ask
0: According to Jack Lane, historian, whether you regard Elizabeth Bowen as a spy or not depends on whether you regard her as English or Irish.
5: If you make her Irish, then she's a traitor to Ireland. She, she did a job for another country during a war situation, so I wouldn't insult a woman by saying she's a traitor. <laughs> to me, she's English... I couldn't feel like moralising about her doing espionage for the country she had allegiance to and the country she loved.
0: But is it that simple? She may not have been clambering over walls to look at military installations. Her reports may have been written for a noble reason in a wartime atmosphere of secrecy and suspicion. But when I think of what she was doing, I can't help thinking of the personal. Of what it would be like to sit down with someone, an old lover, for example and document what they were saying. To go home afterwards and write it all down, and then send it off to a government department. Betrayal is a theme that comes up again and again in her books. The book that was taking shape during the war, her wartime love story, the heat of the day, is all about betrayal. The main character is in the middle of a passionate love affair with a man who she has been told is in fact a spy for the Germans. One of the things Elizabeth Bowen is brilliant at is conveying such betrayal, especially when it's personal.
2: The heat of the day has such great lines about betrayal. As for the impatiences, the hopes, the reiteration of unanswerable questions and the spurts of rumour, he must have been measuring them with a calculating eye. She now saw his smile as the smile of one who has the laugh.
0: If I flick back to the front of the book, I see that Elizabeth Bowen dedicated it to Charles Ritchie. And I wonder what her husband, Alan, thought about that. Charles Ritchie was the Canadian diplomat she was in love with, as Dr. Lara Feigl told
3: us. We're coming into the Rose Garden in Regent's Park, uh, and I'm surprised and pleased to find that there are still roses. This was one of the places that Elizabeth Bowen came with, Charles Ritchie, and they had one of their... Happiest afternoons here that they both look back on for the rest of their lives as a moment of intense love at exactly this time of year. A beautiful autumn day. They'd been talking about coming to see the roses while they were still in high bloom for weeks and then one day she phoned him up at the office and said if they didn't go today they'd soon be over and so they rushed in a taxi to Regent's Park and came to see them and wandered around and lay on the grass. And Charles Ritchie later described it in his diary as a scene. As we walked together, I seemed to see the flowers through the lens of her sensibility. The whole scene, the misty river, the Regency villas with their walled gardens and damp lawns, and the late September afternoon weather blended into a dream. A dream in which these were all symbols soaked with a mysterious associative power. Regent's Park, a landscape of love. I think it's a wonderful passage, both for showing him looking back more appreciatively on her than he sometimes does and, and for showing him sort of taking on her language, as he describes it. That could be a passage in a Bowen novel. And so it shows some of the best element of their relationship was this kind of entwining of minds.
0: That autumn in the Rose Garden was a moment to be treasured because things were to get much worse. By the middle of the war... Elizabeth and her husband Alan were the only people still occupying the beautiful terrace overlooking the park. While it's true that Elizabeth Bowen wrote wonderful dialogue and brought you into a world of relationships in a way few other writers can, she was also writing during a bombing campaign that was shattering London all around her. And she wrote brilliantly about what it was like to live through that.
2: Overhead, an enemy plane had been dragging, drumming slowly round in the pool of night, drawing up bursts of gunfire. Nosing, pausing, turning, fascinated by the point for its intent. The barrage banged, coughed, retched. In here, the lights in the mirrors rocked. Now down a shaft of anticipating silence, the bomb swung, whistling. With the shock of detonation still to be heard, four walls of in here yawped in, then bellied out. Bottles danced on glass. A distortion ran through the view. The detonation dulled off into the cataracting roar of a split building. Direct hit. Somewhere else.
0: But in 1944, that somewhere else was to be Elizabeth's home on Regent's Park.
7: Glass and stone dust everywhere. She says nobody knows what clearing up is like unless they've tried to clear up a house that's been bombed. There was no light at night. You had dust all over your clothes and in your eyes and in your hair.
0: Charles Ritchie saw a change in Elizabeth. He wrote in his diary that her nerves were under terrible strain. And that in the middle of everything, she was frantically trying to write her novel. That novel was the heat of the day, and Bowen's determination to keep writing paid off after the war. When it was published in 1948, it became an instant bestseller and allowed her to repair her London home and to undertake major improvements at Bowen's Court, where up until now there had been no running water.
8: She renewed the whole house.
0: Molly O'Brien, the housekeeper.
8: So she put curtains, carpets, on the floors and all them things. And she did up the drawing room, which hadn't been done for years.
0: Elizabeth and Alan decided to move back to Bowens Court full time. It was as if they had been working and living to the hilt. And now, as they settled into middle age, they were going to fulfil the dream that they had always held at the back of their minds. For the first time in decades, Bowens Court was going to be a full time home. But Alan Cameron died in his sleep eight months later. It was 1952. Elizabeth was 53. In the years that followed, Elizabeth struggled to keep Bowen's going alone on a writer's earnings.
7: And then got in terrible states of anxiety and sleeplessness. Her biographer, Victoria Glendinning. And it was all tied up with her love for Charles Ritchie, you see, who she thought would leave his wife and share Bowen's Court with her, and it would be their house. And of course, he never did, and of course, he was never going to, you know. And the loneliness of it in that big house, you can imagine, with no money. And I think it just got too hard for her. It just got too hard for her.
0: And then in the late 1950s, Elizabeth took a drastic decision. Without telling friends
7: or family, she put Bowen's Court on the market. And she was very ashamed of selling it because it had been in the family forever and because everybody knew her in the neighbourhood and all her relations. She didn't even tell her cousins and people that she was about to do it because she was ashamed.
0: Donica O'Dooling recalls her visiting one more time when she brought a group of
4: schoolchildren up to Bowen's Court. And this child said, ''Miss Bowen, how, how, could, you, how could you leave that place?'' My dear child, there's a thing called cash, she said. The
0: housekeeper, Molly O'Brien, was the last to leave.
8: It was said but she was a spirited woman, like she was able to take it. As I closed the door, just tears.
0: Within a year, the roof was off the house. Shortly afterwards, Bowen's Court was a complete ruin. The cut stone which had built the big house was reused by locals in the countryside all around.
1: Is that, that's, that's the stone. The stone what was, what, no.
0: Dave Dwan at Bowen's
8: Court. Wild
1: and wild. Several around the country.
8: This, this she thing. missed some of the words I said. There's Molly with my best love. Elizabeth kept
0: in touch with Molly O'Brien. Every year she sent her a Christmas card. I have had rather a miserable year with bronchitis. Margaret Duane, an old friend of Molly's,
8: found one of those cards in her attic. What shall I am sure be better come spring? All good luck and happiness to you in 1973. So that was affectionately Elizabeth Cameron. Within a few
0: months of writing that card, Elizabeth Bowen died in England at the age of 73. Charles Ritchie was by her side.
1: Her remains were brought back to Cork Airport.
0: Peggy Duggan is a relative of Bowens Court housekeeper Molly O'Brien.
1: Some neighbours took Molly up to the airport that night to meet the remains and to
0: accompany it back down to here to Farraghie. She was buried by the gates of Bowens Court.
8: They used to just warm that up on the range, I
0: suppose, is it, and... Uh... I'm back in Farraghie with the bed warmer and a question. The market trader in Bantry told me two things. One, that Elizabeth Bowen was a spy. And two, that the people of North Cork hated her because of that. And did you ever hear anything about, because this is where this started, the idea that she did some reports for Churchill and some people said that made her a spy?
1: Couldn't see her in that light, like, you know... Thinking of the way Molly portrayed her and the neighbours and everything, I couldn't see it, that she was like that. Well, <laughs> she's the only one I had spoken about, like, in, in those glowing terms. I haven't heard about the landlords coming across like that. Yeah, but the people around here didn't take much noise of either, cos she was just so good to them, you know? They wouldn't believe half of what they hear about her.
0: They didn't really
1: care. They didn't care because she was a generous person, and she was good to them, and I saluted for them. You know? yeah.
0: So I'm back in Bantry Market a full year since I bought Bowen's bed warmer, and funnily, I've never been able to find the guy who sold it to me again. He seems to have totally disappeared. i quite like to find him and ask him a few more questions. But I suppose I have a different view of the whole matter now. I see that someone like Elizabeth Bowen, someone with her intellect and her values and her feeling of wanting to live fully, would never have wanted to sit idly by while a conflict like World War II was raging. It actually makes complete sense to me that she'd have been in London at the heart of it all and that she'd have done whatever she thought she could to help. And I see from the regard that the people of Farahee still have for her that nothing she did during the war affected her loyalty to the people and places that she loved.